You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Well, welcome, welcome. It's good to see everybody this morning. I'm going to um, speak out of Luke 24. I'm calling this the empty tomb. And um, just like Desiree said, I was observing the the weather that we had Friday and Saturday. My goodness, have we had any two more gloomy days? And um, but if you follow the uh, anything with a church calendar, with Good Friday and then the um, Saturday, of course, Jesus being in the tomb that whole day, and uh, pretty gloomy days particularly with the disciples and the apostles when all that was going on. And I want to talk about that this morning. I'm calling this message The Empty Tomb, and we're going to be looking at Luke 24. On the morning Jesus rose from the dead, none of his disciples believed. None of his disciples believed. His apostles didn't either. The empty tomb presented them with quite a dilemma. What happened? What should we believe? So I want us to jump into Luke 24 and investigate this. So this is um, 1 through 12. I believe we have it overhead. So you can read along with me as I read it. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. Verse 8, and they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And listen to verse 11. This is pretty extraordinary. And their words seemed to them like idle tales or nonsense, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose, ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. And so that morning, Jesus rose from the dead. As I mentioned, no one believed it. And in these verses, we find faithful women, after the Sabbath had ended, going to the tomb, not to confirm the promise Jesus made numerous times that he would rise from the dead, but to anoint his dead body for proper burial. We can see from the other Gospels that they were especially anxious over how they would remove the stone from the covering of the tomb. But not even that dimmed their love for Jesus. They went anyway. 
when they were there, much to their dismay, they encountered two angels. And these angels told them that Jesus was alive, just as he had said. So they returned to the apostles with their report, but were met with such entrenched unbelief that it is startling. But something stirred inside Peter's heart, and he ran to the tomb to investigate. And that's what we're going to take a closer look at. Now, if you look at all the different gospels about this particular episode, different ones have different um, information in them. We know from another one that both Peter and John ran together. We know also that some of the women came back after their first um, trip down to the tomb. But we're going to look at this Luke 24 version. And when we read verse 2, it says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And as I mentioned, one of the pressing issues in these dear uh, ladies' minds was how were they going to roll the stone away so that they could cover Jesus' body in the spices. But they found that the stone was rolled away from the tomb. And I like this. That is such a telling picture of us because to me it represents one of the main issues all of us have, which is anxiety. How many of you are acquainted with being anxious? Two on the third row. Okay, I'm at the right place. I'm pretty sure I was. But um, that was their main anxiety. But the fact that the stone was rolled away can open our eyes to this important truth. Most of what we worry about never happens. Why don't we say that together? Most of what we worry about never happens. (laughs) So many of our anxieties are unfounded and they only exist in our imagination. They're imposters. Life zappers. Life sappers, too. They literally live in a non-existent place, the future. But this verse actually hints at something much more, even greater than that, and it's this. Nothing separates us from him. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Paul said it this way in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I think it's important that in this story of the empty tomb, that when the women who were so anxious over being separated from the body of Jesus, although they thought it was going to be a dead body and not a living Jesus, that we have this picture where the stone that was separating them was actually already removed. And I think that's something the Lord's telling us. A lot of the things we're worried about, he's already dealt with. It's just we don't see it yet. We don't feel it yet. We feel something different. We see other evidences, so-called, that try to convince us to give up on believing in what God has shown us and what God's told us.
verse 2 tells us that when they entered the tomb, it was empty. And that really gave them a problem. Let me say this again. No one believed that Jesus would be raised from the dead. No one. The women, devout and committed to Jesus, went to the tomb expecting to find a dead Jesus, not a living Jesus. Then in verses 4 through 7, it says, As they wandered about their situation, two angels appeared standing beside them in shining garments, and they asked them a very searching question. You have to think through this. This was quite a rebuking sort of question. The first thing the angels say to these two or three or four dear women, how many uh, there were, they said, why do you seek the living among the dead? Do you hear that? Not, hello, how are you doing? I know you're in a bit of trouble here. I know confusion abounds, that um, you're wondering what we've done when Jesus... No, they don't. They say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And the angels actually seem to be incredulous that the ladies didn't believe just as Jesus said, that he would raise from the dead on the third day. But the angels not only knew exactly what Jesus had told the disciples, they knew where he had told them in Galilee. And the words to me seem pretty abrupt, even with the hint of rebuke in their tone. And I think one of the things we need to recognize this, we need to honor the things the Lord shows us. We need to honor the revelation of the Scripture because in a very significant way, God holds us to what he's shown us. So these two angels basically proclaim a kernel of the gospel here with these ladies. And here's an amar- a marvelous thing. The good news is now beginning to seep out of the empty tomb of Jesus. And so looking at verses 6 through 8, the, um, the angels say, He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And then verse 8 says these five words, and they remembered his words. Let's say that together. And they remembered his words. Perhaps the most important thing Jesus ever told them, they forgot. I'm going to tell you, and I know a lot of you know this, you can go through crises so severe, you can forget what you know. You can be so upside down that you can't put two thoughts together that that help secure your peace. How many of you know that's true? How many? So they had forgotten the most important thing Jesus ever said to them. Perhaps they forgot. I was thinking about this. One of the reasons we gather together as a church is to remember. It really is, is to remember. We're bombarded with so much contrary uh, info, ideas, concepts, situations that it's important. The church is an important um, place not not just physical place, but in our hearts because it's a place where we can remember. We can remember what he said. 
We can remember who he is. And we can remember who we are. Just in a few minutes, Dan is going to come up. I'll call him up. Um, we're going to celebrate the gospel through communion. I believe you probably received communion elements as you came in this morning. And we see that the broken bread was his body. The wine they drank was his blood, he said, established a new covenant. Then Jesus urged them twice, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. I know people who have had such amazing encounters with the Lord. They told me, I'll never doubt again. And they were wrong. They did doubt again. They doubted again seriously because we are that kind of people. Don't you know? We really are. We are a messed up bunch. I mean, the best Jesus could find forgot his most significant message and then didn't believe when evidence after evidence came that he was alive from the dead. And those were the leaders. Come on. Oh, my goodness. Oh, gosh. I'm going to have to take a break. The value of the resurrection is that essentially it provides us with an ultimate hope. We can't control what gets resurrected in our lives, meaning that every sorrowful experience will not necessarily be reversed. The truth is our lives, our inner life can always be resurrected, even if heartache brings with it feelings of griefs and emotion, disappointment and loss. So the reality of the resurrection is God won't do everything for you you want. God won't change everything. God won't keep from happening things you don't want to happen. But the resurrection really does say this. In your inner life, you can be resurrected out from legitimate grief, sorrow, and heartache. And we don't have an eternal perspective of this. And it's not easy to get one, but it's available. Paul actually says in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that the sum total of all our heartache in view of eternity is but light affliction. If we can see accurately, the worst day we've ever had, the affliction we feel, it's legit, it's real. But in the light of eternity, Paul called it the man who was shipwrecked the man who spent a day and the night in the deep floating on boards, the man who was lowered down over walls because of persecution, the man who was beaten with uh, 39 stripes numerous times, the man who was left to dead after being stoned, calls that light affliction. I call it a bad day on steroids. Paul wrote, wherefore we don't faint. But though our outward man is decaying, anybody here 60 or 70 years old get this? Our outward man, hey, got any decay, brothers and sisters? Our outward man is decaying, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for the moment, works, listen, works for us. 
Okay, what we have suffered that Paul calls light affliction says, here's the revelation. It's for a moment, but it works for us more and more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. And what he means is that those serious grief-laden, sorrowful situations have the capacity to work in us what Paul called a weight of glory, meaning it increases our authority and the substance we can use for others who are suffering in that same manner we have. That is how we need to view our heartache. In verse 9, we see this written. Then they returned from the tomb. So the ladies go back, and they told all these things to the 11. Those were the apostles minus Judas. And to all the rest, so Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Oh, this is so incredible. And their words seemed to them like idle tales. And they did not believe them. One of the most enlightening aspects of the story of Jesus' resurrection is that no one seemed to believe that it happened. A very respected and reputable group of believing women returned from the tomb, having encountered two angels who found it difficult that they expected to find Jesus dead instead of alive, that then repeated verbatim word for word what Jesus told them and where he told them that he was going to be delivered into the hands. He was going to be crucified. He was going to be raised. So when these women bring that good news to the apostles, how do they respond? Did they rejoice? No. Did they begin to celebrate? No. Actually not. They didn't believe a word they said. And it's even worse than that. I went through 30-some translations of the Scripture to get all the different translations of them not believing, called it idle words. They meant it was nonsense. Now, these are the apostles. And the message of the resurrection came, and they said, it's madness. It's sheer imagination. It's foolish talk. It's stupid, useless tales. It's fiction. It's a lie. Well, the apostles' response should encourage us all. Come on. You know where I'm going with this. If they can go through that, why should we think it's strange that we also can deal with those kind of doubts? And they had way more firsthand evidence than we do. I mean, finally, Jesus said, okay, enough. I'm just going to appear to them. <laughs> That's what happened. All of, all of them. Struggled in their faith. You shouldn't condemn yourself for struggling in yours. Listen, tell yourself, give me a break. 
Tell yourself, give me a break. It's okay to struggle. Come on. But stop. (laughs) Easy, right? I'll, I'll tell you, though. It tells us the damage, disappointment, and misunderstanding God's purposes can do to us, just as it did to the early disciples. They were confused. Part of the reason they were confused, they didn't pay attention. But nobody wanted to hear. I mean, how can, how can this happen? Unstoppable, undefeatable Jesus. Miracles, signs, wonders, healings, water into wine, feeds a multitude on several occasions. Blind people, leprous people, people whose arms were eaten up restored. And then he says, oh, they're going to kill me. It's not going to work out well. And they they can't hear it. They can't hear it. So when everything happens that he said, they are devastated. But let me say this. You, You have to ride out your faith. You really have to stick it out. Here's the good news. Jesus is alive. Here's the bad news. You're going to have days like the apostles did. If you stick with Jesus long enough, there are going to be days you wonder if you can stick with Jesus long enough. That's true. It's true. But you've got to ride out your faith. Don't stop short trusting God. And I'm going to say this too. The scripture reveals that there are times in our lives when we must, and let me quote the verse, let God be true and every man a liar. That's what humility is. When your heart, your soul, your feelings, your circumstance cry out against the reality of the gospel, you have to let God be true and identify yourself as a liar when it comes to disagreeing with the ancient reality of the gospel. You have to write out your faith. You have to believe his word in the face of all other contradictions. And listen, think about this. Some actually respond to the truth as though it's nonsense, madness, sheer imagination, stupid talk. But here's what Paul says. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. Isn't that good? God's foolishness is wiser than men. God's weakness is stronger than men. But I want to get down here to verse 12. Verse 12 says, but Peter arose and ran to the tomb. And stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. I like that word marveling. Somebody say marveling, marveling. And we see a pattern. And this pattern we see is the pattern of re-engaging faith. It's the pattern of beginning to believe again. Peter heard that Jesus was alive, and he responded. The Bible says Peter ran. The Bible says Peter stooped. The Bible says Peter saw. 
the evidence. And the Bible says that Peter marveled. And I, I interpret, and people can re- interpret um, these verses any number of ways, but I interpret Peter's response this way. He arose and ran as a direct result of renewed faith. He stooped, speaks of humility. No one will ever fully believe and follow Jesus without true humility. He saw. He saw after he stooped. Let me say that a different way. He saw after he stooped. Let me say it this way. Evidence came after he humbled himself. The Bible says, then he saw. We all make choices to believe. And I'm going to tell you, they're choices. Following Jesus will always and ever require faith. You're never going to get to the place. Maybe when we have glorified bodies and we're in heaven or Jesus down here and whatever goes on, goes on, argue about all that. But on this side of eternity, there will be no occasion when we will not need faith to continue to grow and be strong in our lives, our, our, our spiritual lives. And that's the major truth. He stooped before he saw. That's Peter facing the challenge to believe. Contrary to what most of us believe, confirmations almost always occur after we exercise our faith, not before. Some people are looking for so many confirmations for something they feel. Maybe their original devotion to Jesus. Well, I need confirmation. Well, why don't you believe and you'll get them? Moses, the Lord says, Moses, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to uh, disrupt to the nth degree the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. I want you to take, convince them to give them, give you gold and silver. I want you to convince them to, to let you off the hook and stop being slaves. And Moses said, well, how, how do I know this is all going to work? And the Lord says, well, after you do it, I'm going to meet with you over on that mountain. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the picture of real faith. You get the confirmation later. Oh, it's not confirmed. I'm not going to do it. Well, help yourself. It ain't work. Well, I might be wrong. You might be. I might make a fool of myself. You might. That's just the way it is. He saw after he stooped. I really like that. But it makes me uh, uncomfortable. Come on, right? He marveled. I like this. I believe that these events gave Peter permission to imagine wonderful things again. The very meaning of the word marveled that described Peter here comes from the idea of considering a wonderful thing. He marveled. means more than he wondered, more than he was puzzled. The word etymology or the basis of the word actually involves having a sense of admiration. When he saw the folded clothes, when he saw the empty tomb, when he heard the women's account, um, he wondered, he wondered, he marveled. He even marveled, could it be true? I want us to dream with Peter 
Let's, let's dream with Peter this morning at this moment in his life, the disappointed apostle, the friend who denied Jesus. Having just lived through the most painful experience of his life, he marveled. His faith and imagination began to re-engage. Some of your faith and imagination can re-engage this morning. I command it. I demand it. I declare it. I proclaim it. There's going to be a re-engagement of faith in this place. He thought, could my friend still be alive? Re-engaged. Or maybe even my friend is alive. He thought, could all his promises and unbelievable words actually be true? Or maybe all his promises and unbelievable words are actually true. He thought, is there a chance even a small chance I can be reconciled with Jesus. Can all my dreams be restored? Can my disappointments disappear? Could my morning be turned to joy like Psalm 30? You have turned for me my morning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth, my morning clothes, and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. As I'm telling Peter's story this morning, I have a feeling I'm telling some of yours too. Maybe you've been disappointed. Things didn't work out for you the way you hoped, the way you expected. I think about my dad dying. I'm 10 years older than my dad. He's passed away so many years ago. Broken broken heart. People died. We have people here who've suffered that. It didn't turn out. We suffered loss. You experienced grief. I can look through the room this morning and see those of you who I know have suffered loss and grief. But this is the celebration this morning of the resurrection. What does that mean? It means at least that there's life after death. The Bible tells us the resurrection of Jesus proved that he was the son of God. We can be assured that there's life after death and that the fear of death can be broken. It also means that in every area of our lives, Jesus can touch us by his Holy Spirit. He can resurrect in us things long given up or lost or that we have forgotten about or simply walked away from. And I thought about this famous old hymn. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. And here's the refrain. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The gospel really does tell us that Jesus the Messiah is the divine son of God who died as a ransom for many, it says in Mark, who's conquered the demonic present age 
with its sin and evil and will return to regenerate the entire material world. That's what the gospel tells us. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God has fully accomplished salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin and to fellowship with him and restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. Those are all elements of the gospel. Now, I'm going to invite um, Dan to come. We're going to receive communion. I know he's got some things he'd like to share with us. But remember, Jesus loves you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, it says. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will do what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thanks, Robin. I promise I'm not going to sing, so these guys just came up here with me. It would ruin Easter. Um, I appreciate um, just the journey Robin articulated it, that the context was a lot of disappointment, right? Um, and the challenge the disciples found themselves in was that they hit pause before the movie was over. And that's where disappointment comes from, right? Um, and again, even though Jesus told them what was coming, told them what was happening, the challenge is until you can fully see or to be on the other side, the moment feels more real than the story. Um, that's what the gospel is. And I love what, I think, Robin, you said this. I think we, we, we gather here to remember something, right? Easter something that we're remembering, we're celebrating. Um, and here's what I've found, that the gospel seems so simple. But it's not so simple that we ever really get it, right? Um, I know for me, I could hear the gospel over and over and over and over and over, and I still need to hear it and remember it again and again. Because the mystery of the gospel is so deep. And I think even in a room like this, we sit here without a full reality of how the work of Jesus has impacted us, um, how it impacted them, right? And I can only think of Peter who um, has taken this roller coaster ride, not just him, but everyone, but he's the one who's running to the tomb after this report and Peter was kind of the, the champion disciple in his own mind. Because um, just before, you know, Peter had uh, gotten word from Jesus himself that, Peter, you're going to deny me. Everyone's going to run away. You're going to deny me. And Peter's in disbelief, right? There's no way I would do that. And Peter's the one who's actually come to this kind of um, realization that this is the Messiah, right? He's even confessing it at a moment. And then this Jesus who walked with them, this Jesus that healed their sick, the Jesus that in front of some of them walked on water, literally defied nature, the Jesus who could speak to the same nature and nature would obey they watched this movie in real time. They saw the lame that couldn't walk get up. 
and run through the city with a testimony. They saw the blind that couldn't see all of a sudden experience color and sight for the first time. They saw people rejoice. Even in the midst of persecution and criticism, they saw the world flipped over. And as that story played on, their hearts were gripped by Jesus. And as Jesus kept journeying, they probably at moments thought, man, this is it. And this is the moment Peter's coming to where he says, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. This is the moment where this is how the movie ends, right? There was no like way they could fathom this guy who can walk on waves and command the wind to be still and heal the sick and raise the dead. There's no way the one who can conquer death would dare fall to it. And in this amazing build of a heroic moment, all of a sudden, Jesus is on the cross. And Jesus, the miracle worker, is now the one who seemingly needs the miracle. And this is where they hit pause. And I don't know, maybe for some of them, they all ran away, but maybe some of them were hiding around the corner, still hoping. And I can only imagine the moment where Peter and those women either saw or got word that Jesus drew his last breath. And of course, in this massive shadow of disappointment and confusion, they couldn't remember the words of Jesus at the table just before, where he said, hey, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. He's revealing the purpose in which he came, and I love the depth of the gospel because Jesus is revealing something that's not just on display, but it's something that we're partakers of. Right, And Jesus sits there that night at the table and he, he, he breaks bread. But here's what he does. He takes the bread and he gives it to them. Which means the beauty of the gospel, it's not just about a man who did something for you. But it's about a God in the flesh who gave something to you. And we don't remember, just memorialize the cross as this suffering moment but we see it as something deeper because when Jesus gave the bread to them there was a sense of ownership he was saying this is not just me this is now yours this is my body that's broken for you and then when we see that body was broken and the pause button is hit disbelief rushes in but that wasn't the full movie, right? Jesus resurrects. Disbelief is still the standard. Disappointment is still too strong. So even at the report of people who they trusted, they still have to see. And Jesus, whether they knew it or not, here's the mystery of the gospel, whether you believe it or know it or not, it's still functioning all around you, within you. It is available. Because what God does 
isn't dependent on your realization. And while they're disappointed and hurting and weeping and sobbing, Jesus is up and he's walking around and they just don't know. And two of them are walking, one of my favorite stories, and then we'll pray and take communion, but two of them are walking in disappointment, the Bible says, on the road to Emmaus. And the resurrected Jesus, who's already delivered hope, starts walking with them. And they walk seven miles, Jesus starts to unravel these mysteries concerning himself. And as being people who should have known or been familiar with the voice, with the image of Jesus, the Bible says that their eyes were kept from knowing him. And as he unravels this thing, it gets all the way to the house. It's late in the night, and they beg Jesus, come in and just dine with us. And Jesus goes in. And for the first time, since he's resurrected, he sits at a table again. And what does Jesus do? He breaks bread, and then he gives it to them. You understand what communion is, what the gospel is, and what we celebrate? We're not celebrating a body that was just broken for you. celebrating a savior who died as you this layer of ownership and Paul would get this he said I'm crucified I was crucified with Christ it wasn't just some God like off in the distant doing this cool conceptual thing this was a reality that now I get to take ownership of but you know that the full movie didn't stop at the cross of Jesus dying for you or as you But three days later, Jesus rose. And he gave them the same bread. We often look at the Last Supper, but look at the First Supper after the resurrection. Now, resurrection is available, not just death. So if you'll stand with me. And if you can somehow navigate opening these And if you can take the bread. I wonder if we could just close our eyes for a moment and set our gaze around the table of Jesus. And this is my prayer this morning that as we take We understand this was something he was giving into the depth of who we are. That he was sowing through the redemptive work of Calvary. He was sowing himself into his own creation. And it's deep, the love of God. It's deep, the gospel. It's deep, the grace, and it's the type gospel and grace and mercy and love that is functioning and walking with you, whether you are aware or not. That's how beautiful 
his work is. But it's the moment we sit at the table and accept the bread from Jesus and take ownership that everything changes. And so, Father, this morning we take the bread. And God, we don't just remember a body that was broken. We remember the body that was given. God, we remember a God who concealed himself and walked with us, who would bleed for the very creation that nailed him in the moment. And God, we embrace and take ownership of this reality that you didn't just die for us, but your cross was our cross, that you died as us. And everything that we've been, everything that we were, is gone. And we thank you, Jesus. Let's take the bread. Jesus gave from the cup. And he says, this is my blood. And he ties it to this covenant that is eternal, that's not momentary. So this morning, Father, we we drink from a cup that has no limit, that has no discrimination, it has no preference, it has no boundaries. Got a cup that as many times as I need the redemption and the power that is constantly overflowing with more than enough. And again, God, we don't just remember the blood that was spilled, but God, we take ownership of what it speaks over our lives. And last, Father, we thank you that the story did not end with a broken body and spilt blood. But after three days, you awoke which means that the gospel isn't just about a humanity that was crucified with Christ. It's about a humanity that also was raised to new life, that all things have become new, that we are a new creation. As Paul would write in Colossians, he said, since then you have been raised, past tense. Something that's already true, whether you know it or not, you've been repositioned. By Jesus. Since you've been raised, set your heart and your mind in that place.
And so God, we drink this morning as a new creation and celebration of new life because of your blood. Let's drink. So last, let's just pray really quick. Father, we just thank you for the gospel, for the story, for the life change. God, I thank you that we sit here in new creation. I pray that every person in this church, every person online would have a sense of that reality, God, even though it's so mysterious to unpack. And here's the last thing I want us to do, because this was the hard part for them to believe after disappointment is we have to put faith and trust in the gospel that it really is true and it really is enough because there are the moments where it doesn't feel like it but God's reality is so much bigger than our feeling amen so God we trust you in Jesus name amen awesome bless you guys have an amazing Easter Uh, We love you very much. If you're someone here this morning who needs prayer, come grab one of the team, one of us. If you're online, send someone a message. But pray that you have an amazing holiday. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.